As the United States saw increasing civil rights actions throughout the 1950s and 60s, local governments in Mississippi resisted calls for change. The conflicts were often fought out in court, as was the case in 1962 when the segregated public swimming pools in the state's capital city were shut down rather than integrated. White Mississippians would not accept such close public contact with their fellow black citizens. Welcome to Speaking of Mississippi, where we'll explore the landmark moments and overlooked stories of our state's history. I'm Chris Goodwin with the Mississippi Department of Archives and History, and this podcast is made possible by the John and Lucy Shackelford Charitable Fund of the Community Foundation for Mississippi. In this episode, we'll talk with Harvard Law School professor Randall Kennedy. Kennedy clerked for Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall and is a member of the Bar of the District of Columbia and the Supreme Court of the United States. He was awarded the 1998 Robert F. Kennedy Book Award for Race, Crime, and the Law. Randall Kennedy, thank you so much for being with us today. I want to ask you about a significant legal action that took place in Mississippi's capital city of Jackson. Alan C. Thompson served as mayor from 1948 to 1969. During that time, Jackson's population nearly doubled with a matching expansion of municipal facilities and services. Those were years of strict racial segregation in Mississippi. So when in 1962, a court ruled that Jackson's enforced segregation in the operation of its public parks, golf courses, swimming pools, zoos, libraries, and other recreational facilities constituted a denial of equal protection of the law, it marked a crisis point for Thompson's administration. At that time, the city operated five public pools. Four were open only to whites, and the fifth was open only to blacks. What did the city do with its zoo, parks, and golf courses, and what did it do with its swimming pools? Well, with respect to most recreation facilities, the city desegregated them in the sense of allowing people of different races to use them. But it should be noted that the city opened these facilities up, but with certain changes. So, for instance, the city removed benches so that people would be on the same land. They might be viewing the same thing in the zoo. They might be viewing the animals together. But in trying to keep as much of the old regime as possible, benches were removed. It also needs to be said that the judge who issued that order was Judge Sidney Mize, who was a thoroughgoing segregationist, and he did everything possible to avoid issuing an order of desegregation. Finally, he had to, and he did, but he he did it in the narrowest possible way, and the city enforced it in the narrowest possible way. Now, you, you asked me about the swimming pools. Here's what the city said, basically, to the local NAACP and the other people who were demanding desegregation. The city authority said, listen, we're willing to desegregate a lot of things, but not the swimming pools. So Mayor Thompson and, and, and others said, if you force us on the swimming pools, we'll close them all. And so the NAACP and the, and the other dissenters the, you know, the racial reformers in the city had a dilemma on their hands. Do they, what, what do they do? Do they, they push it all the way or do they accept the compromise? 
and they decided to push it all the way. They demanded the desegregation of the swimming pools, and Mayor Thompson made good on his threat. And what did he do? He closed all the swimming pools to everyone. And when the swimming pools were closed to everyone, that is what occasioned a new lawsuit, a challenge to the closing of all of the swimming pools. After the city swimming pools were closed, young people sought other places to cool off in the Mississippi summer heat. Some of them swam in the Pearl River, which flows along the city's eastern border. Yes, they did. And unfortunately, there were some youngsters who drowned when they went to the Pearl River. And that, by the way, didn't just happen in Jackson. That was a consequence in many places. For instance, in Baltimore, Maryland, very similar thing happened. There was a real fight to prevent the desegregation of swimming pools. Kids in the summertime do what kids do. They, you know, they're they're adventurous, they're creative. They went to swimming holes where they could, you know, get in the water. And unfortunately, there were drownings. There were drownings other places. So, you know, what do we take from that? Again, we're talking about a case, probably the most famous desegregation of swimming pools case was in Jackson, Mississippi. But it was not the only place where this issue was being contested. All across the United States, there were fights over the desegregation of swimming pools. And swimming pools became a very special place. I mean, you know, we think of desegregation of schools, we think of desegregation of buses, we think of desegregation of of lots of places. But the swimming pool became a very special, a particularly volatile place. You might ask, well, why? Well, I mean, you know, just think about swimming pools. You know, what happens at swimming pools? People disrobe at swimming pools. You know, people sit, they're disrobed, they're nearly naked. They sort of present themselves in a way that's unique. Swimming pools have a certain sort of, frankly, erotic charge around them. And that's why the swimming pool, not only in in, in Jackson, but other places as well, became an especially contested place in the struggle over desegregation. Jackson resident Hazel Palmer was active in the freedom movement. She was a supporter of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, and her son was arrested as a freedom rider in 1961. Ms. Palmer and other residents petitioned to have the pools reopened and integrated. The city declined to do so. How did she come to file the suit against the city, and how did you first learn about Palmer v. Thompson? I'm going to tell you, I have taught Palmer V. Thompson many, many times over the years. I've been in law teaching now for 36 years. I've taught this case in my race relations law cases. I've taught it in constitutional law cases. I've, I've, I've you know, taught this many times. I did not know anything about Hazel Palmer until I got an invitation from the museum to give a lecture. And in preparation for that lecture, and I I wrote an article alongside the lecture, and in preparation for it, I thought to myself, who's Hazel Palmer? (laughs) I knew about Mayor Thompson. I knew about him. He was a thoroughgoing, a stalwart segregationist. And I I, I knew about him, but I didn't know about Hazel Palmer. (laughs) And by the way, this is not an unusual thing among law teachers. We we teach the cases 
And, and, and we, we know the names of the cases, but very often the names are just placeholders. We don't ask ourselves, well, you know, who are these people? Every now and again, a, a law teacher will do some investigation into the, the identity of the parties, but typically not. Typically not. We talk about the, you know, we talk about the arguments. We talk about the legal principles. We talk about, you know, the facts of the case to the extent that judges have noted the facts of the case. But generally speaking, we do not talk about the parties. And so I did a little bit of investigation. To tell you the truth, I felt somewhat embarrassed that I had not previously investigated the identity of Hazel Palmer. And I was absolutely captivated when I started reading about her. Because here's this lady, she was not a big activist. She was a very modest person, just your sort of regular person who got drawn into the civil rights struggle because of her solidarity with her son. Her son was arrested. He participated in desegregation activism. He goes to the train station and he's arrested. And it's through him that she sort of, you know, she loves her son. She wants to look after her son. She becomes invested in her son. And it was through her son that she got introduced to the black freedom struggle. And she became quite a figure. You mentioned, I mean, she became very active in the Mississippi Democratic Freedom Party. In fact, she traveled to Atlantic City in the summer of 1964. I mean, she becomes an activist in her own right, but she became an activist through her son. I found that to be one of the most poignant features of the case. And I can just tell you now when I teach the case, I make a big deal of Hazel Palmer. I should mention one other thing. When I went to the museum and I, you know, I gave my lecture, I said I would love to talk with anyone after the lecture who actually knew Mrs. Palmer. And of course, there were a number of people who came up and said, yep, I knew her. And people talked with me about her. So it was one of these things in which I was giving a lecture, but of course, I was also being instructed. <laughs> and, you know, it, it made it a very meaningful lecture, uh, an, an especially memorable lecture, uh, because I was able to, you know, to, 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 you know, do some research. So, what are the facts of Palmer v. Thompson and what was its course through the legal system? It's a very interesting case. What happened is that after all five swimming pools were closed, Hazel Palmer and colleagues petitioned and say, we, you know, we'd like these open. And the city authorities, you know, didn't budge. And so Ms. Palmer and her colleagues sued. And it was their suit that became the case Palmer versus Thompson. So they sue. The case goes to a judge, Judge William Harold Cox, who, by the way, was one of the most notorious federal judges of this period. He was an obstreperous segregationist who really, I mean, he said 
all sorts of racist things from the bench. But because of where he was, he was in the Southern District of Mississippi. He was in a very strategic place and was the judge in a number of key cases. For instance, he was the judge who oversaw the federal prosecution of people who were accused by the federal government of having participated in the murders of Goodman Cheney Schwerner, Andrew Goodman, Michael Schwerner, James Cheney probably the single most famous case of racially motivated violence in the Second Reconstruction. Well, William Harold Cox was the judge who presided over that trial, and he he presided over a number of other important civil rights cases, as did Sidney Mize, who was the judge who presided over the desegregation of the other, you know, uh, recreation facilities. I mean, the Southern District of Mississippi was very important. Just, just to give an, one other example, Sidney Mize was the federal district judge who presided over the case that led to the desegregation of Ole Miss, Meredith versus Fair. So this place, the Southern District of Mississippi, the federal judges in that district, very important. And William Harold Cox was the judge who presided over Palmer versus Thompson. And to go on with it, what what, he's, what happened was Hazel Palmer and, 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 and her colleagues, they sue. And what they say is, listen, the authorities in Jackson were ordered to desegregate, and the only reason that they are closing the pools is to avoid that desegregation order. And that in and of itself is a new violation of the federal constitution. All right, well, that's what they say. What did the city say? The city says, no, the reason why we are closing the pools is because we anticipate that if the pools are open, there will be disorder at the pools and that will be expensive. So on grounds of avoiding disorder, so for, you know, for public safety reasons, and also for reasons of just minimizing cost, the city's position is that's why we close the pools. We're trying to maintain order. We're trying to keep down costs. And that is our basis for closing the pools. What does Judge Cox say? Judge Cox rules in favor of the defendants. Judge Cox says that the defendants have discretion, and he basically says, I give them the benefit of the doubt. And furthermore, they've told me why they're closing the pools, and there's nothing objectionable about closing pools to maintain order. There's nothing objectionable about closing pools to minimize costs. And furthermore, the pools are being closed to everyone. It's not like the white people get to use the public pools. Nope, they don't get to use them. They're close to the white people. They're close to the black people. So everybody's being treated the same. End of story. Next case. So after Judge Cox issued his ruling in favor of the defendants, Hazel Palmer and her colleagues appealed to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed Judge Cox. There were two judges who voted to affirm Judge Cox, and there was a dissenting judge. Now, the judge who wrote the opinion affirming Judge Cox 
was a judge by the name of Richard Taylor Reeves, R-I-V-E-S. Richard Taylor Reeves was a very well-respected Court of Appeals judge. He was deeply respected and had shown considerable heroism, actually, because he was willing to follow the Supreme Court's order in Brown versus Board of Education even when it was very unpopular in the Deep South to do so. So, for instance, Judge Reeves was on the panel of judges that ruled in favor of Martin Luther King Jr. and company in the Montgomery bus boycott. I mean, so Judge Judge Reeves was a deeply respected judge who was a desegregationist-minded judge. But in this case... Judge Reeves ruled in favor of the city authorities, basically accepting their rationale. Again, their rationale was we're trying to avoid disorder, we're trying to minimize cost, and we are doing something that imposes a burden on everyone, whites and black alike. There was a dissenting judge. The dissenting judge was John Minor Wisdom, a wonderful judge, a wonderful judge based in New Orleans. And what John Minor Wisdom basically said was, listen, we all should know why the city is closing its pools. The reasons that they are giving are pretextual. Those are just reasons that they're giving to us, the judges, That's not the real reason. The real reason why they are closing the pools is because they want to avoid desegregation of the pools. That's the real reason. They simply are unwilling to let go of segregation at the swimming pools. This is their way of avoiding desegregation. And it was his view that this should be deemed a fresh violation of the Equal Protection Clause, because his view was that actually the city was willing to inconvenience everyone to make a point. What's the point? The point is that Black people pose a risk, they pose a danger. We don't want white people to be in a swimming pool with Black people, and we feel that so deeply that we are willing to inconvenience everyone, including white people. That's how deeply we feel about segregation at the swimming pool. And so Judge Wisdom said, yay, this should be viewed as an unconstitutional stigma imposed upon black people, even though this particular policy is going to have the effect of inconveniencing whites as well. So that's the Court of Appeals. And by the way, it doesn't stop there because when Hazel Palmer and her fellow plaintiffs lose at the panel of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, they then petition that Court of Appeals to have an in-bank rehearing of the case. Now, what in-bank means is all of the judges on the Fifth Circuit participate in a rehearing. So the Fifth Circuit, usually when you go to the, you know, a court of appeals, they just pick three judges at random to hear the case. And those judges speak on behalf of the whole court. But then there's some cases in which if there's enough interest, 
all of the judges. Now, frankly, I have forgotten how many judges were on the Fifth Circuit in the late 1960s, but it was more than three. I mean, it was probably 13 or 14. And when you have a case that's in-banked, all of the judges participate. And so they had an in-bank hearing, and it was very close. I think it was, I think it was seven to six, something like that. It was a one-vote margin, but the one-vote margin was in favor of the defendants. And Judge Reeves wrote another opinion defending his previous opinion, and Judge Wisdom again dissented, and the plaintiffs, Palmer and her colleagues, did not quit. What did they do? They appealed to the Supreme Court of the United States. And the Supreme Court took their case, and the Supreme Court issued a ruling, again, very close, one vote. It was a ruling in which Hugo Black wrote for the majority, one vote majority, the Supreme Court, and he ruled in favor of the defendants, and there was a very strong dissent. Actually, there were a number of dissents, but the main dissent was written by uh, Justice Byron White. So the majority opinion came from Justice Hugo Black, and the dissenting opinion was written by Justice Byron White. And the Supreme Court, you know, frankly, didn't break new ground. The Supreme Court rehearsed the arguments that had been fully aired by the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. And basically, Justice Black said, listen, the courts below have accepted the reason that was given by the city authorities. And furthermore, everybody is being treated equally. Byron White, on the other hand, said, you know, we have experience with the authorities in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. It's not like we're dealing with city authorities who we don't know. We at the Supreme Court know the authorities in Jackson because we've dealt with a whole bunch of cases from Jackson. And we know that in Jackson, Mississippi, in the late 1960s, the city authorities were stubborn segregationists. Justice White had, you recall, been in the Justice Department. He had been Deputy Attorney General under John F. Kennedy. And so he had had a lot of experience before he was on the Supreme Court with the city authorities in Jackson, Mississippi. He basically urged his colleagues to remember this. He said, you know, we don't have to be naive here. We don't have to just accept the rationale that they've put down on paper. The question is, what's really going on? And Byron White was saying what's really going on here is an effort to retain the old segregationist regime just through different means. You know, previously, the old regime had kept segregation in play by telling black people, you go, you use this swimming pool and white people, you use this swimming pool. Now they're keeping segregation in play by telling everybody, we're not going to have any public swimming pools. So go to your own swimming pools. So it was segregation by different means. But Justice Black wrote for the majority opinion, wrote the majority opinion, and the Supreme Court of the United States 
1971, in this case, ruled in favor of the authorities in Jackson. The Mississippi Civil Rights Museum tells the story of a movement that changed the nation. One of those stories focuses on the work of Dr. Gilbert R. Mason, a black physician in Biloxi who led a series of wade-ins on the segregated Gulf Coast beaches. Police shut down the first two wade-ins, but for the third, on April 24, 1960, a mob of whites attacked the protesters with baseball bats, chains, blackjacks, and lead pipes in what the New York Times called, quote, the worst race riot in Mississippi history. The attack prompted the federal government to sue county officials since federal funds had been used to build and maintain the beaches, and the case eventually opened the beaches to all races. Learn more about the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum and how to visit it at mcrm.mdah.ms.gov. Randy, what ultimately happened with the city's public swimming pools? What ultimately happened is that the pools were closed for a while. I don't have my article right in front of me, so I can't tell you exactly how long they were closed, but they were closed for a while, an appreciable while. And after some time had had passed, and by the way, after the the local politics had changed, things cooled down, anxieties lessened. You know, it's probably the case that some people dropped out of politics, some people dropped out of life. And then I think on all sides, there became a recognition that a new dispensation needed to be tried. And so quietly, the pools were reopened. And by the way, when they're reopened, not a big deal. There were a couple of, there were a number of newspaper articles where, you know, reporters went to take a look, you know, what's going to happen. What happened was that kids jumped in the pool and, you know, (laughs) and, and had a good time. And that was that. It was a very undramatic reopening of public swimming pools in Jackson. In looking at your article, uh, it seems like June 13, 1975 is when they reopened. So, Wow. Yeah. Okay. So it, it was a couple of years. I think it's, it's significant. I think it's significant because very often, you know, when we think about the civil rights movement, and we think about the, the second reconstruction, I think people have in mind you know, the mid-60s, right? I mean, you know, 1964 Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act of 1965, Open Housing Act of 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated in 1968. Yeah. But I think people often think of the civil rights movement, you know, 1960s. Well, this case is decided in 1971. The swimming pools are not reopened until 19, what, 74. Right. So the, the second reconstruction, actually, it, it, its origins go back further than 1954, Brown versus Board of Education. Right. And it's the, the, the bookend, I think, goes further than a lot of people think. Let me ask a question about the attorneys who represented Mrs. Palmer and the other plaintiffs, who who were some of those attorneys that represented them? And did they have roles in other significant civil rights legislation? 
In many of the big civil rights cases of the Second Reconstruction, probably most, and certainly those that went to the Supreme Court, the lawyers would have been lawyers connected with the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People or the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Those were the two sets of lawyers that were the most prominent, the most skilled, the ones that had the most experience, you, and you see their names over and over again. In Palmer versus Thompson, the lawyer that was probably most responsible for pushing the case with the plaintiffs was William Kunstler. Now, William Kunstler in the 1960s became known, especially in the late 60s, as a radical lawyer, he represented various groups. He represented you know, Black Panthers. He represented various groups that were on the more assertive, militant, radical side of the Black liberation struggle. Earlier in his career, however, Huntsler had come to the South. And in fact, as a lawyer representing Black people in the South, it really turned his life around. He had been just, you know, a regular lawyer and, in, in, you know, up north. I think he was in New York City. He had a regular law practice, but then he took a couple of cases pro bono, and it made him feel so good that he became a lawyer who actually mainly represented people whose politics he wanted to advance. So William Kunstler, he had associates. He had an associate in Detroit. Kunstler himself was mainly located in New York City. But you, you, you had two left-wing white lawyers that were the representatives, the legal representatives for the plaintiffs in this case. When the city pools reopened on June 13th, 1975, were white and black people using them? To some extent, you had mixed race swimming in the pools. You had white people that went to the pools and you had black people who, who went to the pools. And by the way, there was no violence. For those who used the pools, things went swimmingly. Now, there is, however, a sober part to this story. And the sober part to this story is that in Jackson, as in lots of places, when these public swimming pools were desegregated, a lot of people decided not to use them. And indeed, one of the stories of public swimming pools, not just in the South, but across the United States, is that when Black people started using what had formerly been white swimming pools, one of the things that happened in lots of places is white flight. White people stopped going to the pools. They would build pools in their backyards, or they would build, you know, these pools that are above ground, or they would do something, but they, in a sense, withdrew from the pools. And this is, again, I want to emphasize this, because oftentimes people sort of, you know, look at the South as if the South was, you know, completely exceptional. No, this was a nationwide phenomenon. And it's a phenomenon, by the way, that still has its consequences. Wherever you go in the United States, if you take a look at the racial demographics of swimming pools, 
you will see the effect of the white flight from the public swimming pools. And that is a, a, a sobering feature of the struggle that still faces us. By the way, there's another thing that we see in our social life today. Because, you know, when these things happen, it's not as if they go away all of a sudden. It took a long time coming, and it's going to take a long time before we're able to fully erase the consequences of racial oppression in American life. So people who are interested in swimming, either at the competitive level or just at the level of just getting people to know how to swim for enjoyment and also protection, one of the things that people who are interested in swimming today are now doing, they're making special efforts to reach out to black communities to teach swimming. Why? Because for a long time, black people, you know, were kept away from public swimming pools. They didn't learn how to swim. They were discouraged from using pools. This had consequences. And this has consequences that we see today in lots of communities today, in African-American communities. There is less swimming, less knowledge of swimming, less zest for swimming. And people who are into swimming are trying to grapple with that by making efforts to, you know, draw black people into swimming. Very sobering fact. You take a look at the racial demographics of drowning. The racial demographics of drowning show what so many racial demographics show, and that is that the bad things that happen have a disproportionate adverse effect on racial minority communities. And these effects are probably related to the history that Palmer versus Thompson memorializes. Randall Kennedy, this has been a fascinating look into some of Mississippi's lesser known history that still affects us today. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. I really appreciated being with you. I really appreciated being able to speak at the museum. And uh, good luck with your work. Speaking of Mississippi is a joint production of the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and the Community Foundation for Mississippi. On other episodes this season, we'll talk about the 1970 Jackson State shootings, the yellow fever epidemic of 1878, and the Civil War siege of Jackson. This season, our opening music comes from a 1942 recording by Sid Hempel, the most storied black musician in the Mississippi Hills in the early 20th century. Our closing music was recorded in 1939 by Tishomingo County fiddler John Hatcher and included on the 1985 Mississippi Department of Archives and History release, Great Big Yam Potatoes. I'm Chris Goodwin, and thank you for listening to Speaking of Mississippi.